They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are monsters out of the closet. I'm Nicole. And I'm Shreya. Some of horror's most beloved hallmarks undergo fantastical changes. Werewolves, zombies, vampires, even Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But transformation isn't always so horrific. This month, we delve into transformations that herald justice, progress, and power, if we can only withstand the growing pains. Our first piece brings us to a charming bed and breakfast that's a little too far from civilization. What transformations of the soul occur at such distance from humanity? No Good Deed, written by supporting producer Tara Rangan, takes us into the home of a woman whose isolation has wrought some incredible changes. sorry. Daryl Falk. Can't come to the phone now. Please leave a message after the tone or press 1 for more options. Hey Daryl, just touching base to see if you reached okay. I know the instructions were complicated, but it's good that her little bed and breakfast is out of the way. And I know it's hard to leave your school friends behind, honey, but it's important that you spend some time away right now. And don't forget to thank Fran for offering to put you up. This is way cheaper than a hotel would be. Anyway, I know I promise not to call until the month is up, but text me sometime, okay, honey? I love you. Daryl stowed his phone in his pocket and stood quietly in front of the tiny cottage. The lone street lamp cast a soft light on the door, and the fireflies drifting in front of the hand-painted Fran and Joe's Bed and Breakfast sign gave the place a cheery glow in the evening gloom. Crickets chirped merrily in time to the fireflies' dance. He ran his hand through his lightly moosed hair, then shuffled up to the door. His hand reached automatically for a doorbell, then stopped as it met wood paneling. He studied the door, then reached out hesitantly, and gave a cord at the door two assertive yanks. He was rewarded with a jangle from the other side of the door. I'm coming, barked a voice from deep inside the house. Daryl heard a cane tapping down a hallway, then the click of a lock before the door swung inward. The figure was tall and willowy, with a black bob, cat-eye sunglasses, classic red lipstick, and an outdated white flapper dress. A lace shoulder cape was clasped at her throat with a dazzling ruby brooch that gleamed in the lamplight. A swingy instrumental wafted out from behind her, Daryl found himself mesmerized by the brooch, which seemed to him to glow ethereally, then caught himself. He probably shouldn't be staring at this woman's chest. His eyes started in a neat circle around her face and eventually settled on a space above her left ear. He cleared his throat nervously. Hi, I'm Daryl. I have a reservation. The woman bared her teeth 
affably. <laughs> it's cute that you think my little old place is fancy enough for reservations. But I'm glad you decided to show up. She tapped her cane lightly on the doorframe. Now, step in before the warm gets out. Daryl peered into the living room behind her, which was only dimly lit by a dying fireplace, in front of which sat an old-fashioned radio. There were two other figures already inside, curled up on the sofa underneath a blanket. The woman tapped her cane again. Sorry, muttered Daryl as he stepped inside. The woman shut the door and lightly sniffed the air, then closed her eyes appreciatively. That's a lovely cologne you're wearing. Uh, thanks. My my dad got it for me. It's Cartier. The woman elbowed him playfully. Ooh, sounds expensive. Your dad's got some moneyed taste. She shook her head. Oh, I forget myself. Let's get you checked in, shall we? She tottered to a makeshift counter and tapped lightly on a microphone attached to her laptop. Computer, user Francine logging in. A chime issued from the computer, followed by a cheerfully automated voice. Hello, Francine. How may I be of assistance? Visitors log. One moment. Retrieving. Photoshop. No, no. Visitor log. She wrapped her knuckles on the side of the laptop. Look, can I just... Oh, by all means. I was never all that savvy with computers. Joe's the one who set all this up. She hobbled to the side to let him pass, and Daryl peered at a dark screen. Where's the, uh... Oh, right. Her hand flew up to her forehead. You can see. I didn't even turn on the lights. Let me just... She pawed at the computer and hit a button, then felt her way to a light switch. The lights flickered on to illuminate a number of old-fashioned photographs dotting the walls. With her equally ancient fashion sense, she seemed comfortably at home in them. Another woman appeared in the photos. Joe, Daryl supposed, who looked comfortable, with short hair, colored shirts, and sturdy boots. She did not appear to be given as much prominence as Francine, and the few pictures in which she appeared were either with Francine, or with a hulking beast of a black dog, which had a thick collar around its neck, decorated with a single large gem. Despite its size, the dog seemed friendly, its eyes cloudy and its tail a waggy blur. I thought the other boys at least would have reminded me. Really, I'm so sorry. No problem. Daryl found himself looking at the oldest laptop he had ever seen. The interface was functional, but hopelessly ugly. With a few quick taps, he found the visitor's log and entered his name, the date, and the time, 8.56pm. He peered at the names above his. Walter McGill and Zachary Ayers? That's them! Francine gestured to the lumps under the blanket. Daryl found himself groping for a memory in the dusty cabinetry of his mind. Where had he heard those names? Panic seized him. Oh god, had he met them during his disastrous appearance on the news? Did these boys know him? Francine sensed the pause. Do you know them? I don't uh, think so. Daryl's memory failed to match faces to names, and he exhaled. Probably not anyone he'd met personally. Most likely not anyone from school. Surely not anyone who had seen his interview. 
Not personally, anyway. But I think... Are they famous for something? Have they been on the news, or...? I wouldn't know. I don't watch the news. She lowered her sunglasses briefly to expose heavily cataracted eyes. Daryl instinctively flicked his gaze away. Sorry. <laughs> don't worry about it. I'm so used to it, sometimes I forget that other people can see. Daryl ran a nervous hand through his hair again. Uh, thank you for offering to let me stay after... after what happened. Francine waggled her fingers dismissively. Don't worry about it, hun. I know what it's like to have too many folks talking. That's why Joe and I made our place out here. No gossip, no interruptions. No one to see what you're doing give you any shit for it. Just the occasional house guest to give us company, and a little more spending money. So, is Joe your wife? Did she take all these pictures? Francine smiled warmly. She did. It was her hobby. I was never any good at pictures myself, for obvious reasons. She waved a hand in front of her eyes. She claims I look quite good in them. Her hand hovered over the brooch at her throat. We never did get married. My Joe passed away before we could. But she gave me this brooch all those years ago, and... <sighs> we were married in all the ways that matter to me. What happened to her? Fran's head snapped around, and Daryl's heart sank. It was the wrong question to ask. Why was he so awkward? No wonder he'd come across so badly in his interview. A drunk driver happened to her? Funny. <laughs> we always thought that was how I'd go. <laughs> and the gentleman who did apparently had two previous DUIs. One when he was a minor, of course, but then another just a few years prior. Fran kept her empty gaze fixed in Daryl's general direction. He shifted his weight from heel to toe and back. Do you know the last word she said to me before she passed? It's not his fault. He'll learn from this. Daryl felt his mouth go dry. Do you think... Let me show you the grounds. This house is all one floor, for obvious reasons, and I may be blind, but I know my way around this place by heart. I only ask that if you want something, to please ask me first. Had a tenant use my favourite mug a few months ago, and I can't for the life of me figure out where they put it back. If you go out through that door, it'll lead you straight into the woods. Let me tell you, they are gorgeous in the mornings. I might just wake you all up tomorrow so you get to see the sunrise, because it is beautiful. My Joe used to hunt out there some mornings, and always bring something home for supper. Is that hunting dog Joe's as well? Fran cracked a mischievous smile. She was. There was a story there, and Daryl didn't want to hear it for fear of what else Fran might divulge. So, the two walked in silence until they reached the room. Daryl tossed his luggage alongside the other tenants' bags, and took note of the hunting rifles hanging on the wall. Joe's, most likely. Joe was always so forgiving. Francine began on their walk back to the living room. She had such a big heart. She wanted to save the entire world, one person at a time. She moved her thumb in rhythmic circles along her cane. Daryl noticed the paint had been worn away on that side. I... Francine's voice caught in her throat. <clears throat> it's why we started this place. To give people who were down on their luck a little break from the world. 
just one day where they could wake up to a quiet forest without anyone for miles around. Fran walked more slowly, her cane tapping lazily in front of her. And she was so infectious. I wasn't like her when we met. I was skeptical. Harder. I needed to be harder, so I could survive long enough for us to meet. And once we did, I found myself becoming... less feral, I suppose. Trusting. Less anxious. Fran stopped in the hallway, her cane resting gently at her side. Then she shook her head, as if shooing an errant fly. But there comes a time when you have to realize that giving second, third, and fourth chances doesn't mean anything. Some people need to face the consequences of their mistakes, or they'll make them again and again and again, and they'll keep hurting people. She felt her way along a shelf in the living room and produced two wide-rimmed glasses edged with salt and set about making margaritas. Let's have a toast. To the woman who would have been my wife, if she'd only lived long enough. Um, I'm underage. Given what they've been saying on the news, I didn't think that mattered to you. Daryl took the glass with shaking hands, then clinked it against hers. They both drank deeply. Daryl coughed and sat heavily on the sofa by the two unconscious co-tenants. Too strong for you? Daryl shook his head, his eyes watering. It was much stronger than he expected, and the salt felt like it clung to his throat. He was suddenly too dizzy and tired, nauseous, to move. Francine's expression morphed to one of carefully calculated concern. Oh, oh dear. Let me grab you some water from the kitchen. I'll be right back. Daryl watched in a stupor as her cane echoed down the hallway. Why was he so ill suddenly? He glanced at the two bodies occupying the rest of the sofa. His hand brushed one boy's forehead. Was he imagining the skin to be too clammy? Was it natural to fall asleep with such a pallor? Where did he know their names from? He once again let his gaze rest on the small, old-fashioned radio sitting on the table by the fireplace. He reached out to turn the knob, slowly. And the great wolf opened its slavering maw. Daryl let his gaze travel dully along the walls as he waited for the nausea to subside. There were too many of Francine to count, so he let himself pick out the exceptions. Joe. Never Joe by herself. Always Joe and Francine, or Joe and her milky-eyed hunting dog. He allowed himself a weak grin at her expression. She occasionally cracked a smile, it seemed. And he felt that she regarded the dog with the same fondness that she did her... wife? He supposed that they were still wives, even if they'd never gotten married. He wondered idly if they'd asked tenants to take the pictures of Joe with Fran or the dog. Wait. Daryl furiously rewound the last few seconds of his memory, but it was like trying to spool back an audio cassette with a pencil. Had the radio program mentioned Zachary? He lolled his head to the side to look at the person next to him. Still too cold. Still too clammy. The fire had only just gone out when he'd come in. 
How long had it been since then? How long had it been since he'd heard Zachary's name on the program? A memory sparked in the haze. He had heard both of their names on the news program just before that terrible interview. What were they doing here? Why was Francine taking so long with the water? Slowly, as if in a trance, Daryl reached out to the radio and turned the knob back to the previous station. One Zachary Ayers, who just this month was found innocent of sexual assault. Thank you so much for that interview with the families of Daryl Falk's victims, John. Our thoughts and prayers are, of course, with them, even if the judicial system is not. Coming up next is an interview with the parents of Walter McGill, who was cleared of manslaughter charges after pushing a fellow classmate off the roof of a building. Tune in after the break as we continue to answer the question, is affluenza, or an abundance of wealth leading to heedlessness, a legitimate defense when discussing teenaged boys' criminal behavior? Daryl's mind reeled, and he felt his consciousness slip under as the odd realization hit him. The jewel on the hunting dog's collar was the same as the brooch around Francine's throat. The dog's eyes were clouded with cataracts. Daryl awoke with a pounding head and immediately vomited into the cold dirt. His gaze focused on two pallid boys around his age, each grasping a rifle with trembling hands. Walter McGill, who killed his friend in a drunken argument atop a school library. Zachary Ayers, who sexually assaulted a girl at a party, leading to her eventual suicide. And himself, Daryl Falk, who had hit and killed two of his classmates while driving home after one too many drinks. All boys whose lawyers had successfully argued that they were too rich to understand the consequences of their behavior. He rolled over to his side to find a third rifle and checked the chamber. One bullet. He didn't know how to shoot, so he removed the bullet and held the rifle out in front of him like a club, butt first. The three boys clustered together in the woods as the sun peaked above the treetops. A quiet forest, no one for miles around. They all stood still for what seemed like an age. Then, a light crackle of broken twigs. I'm so glad you accepted my offer to stay, boys. Fran's voice dropped to a low growl as she padded into the clearing. Otherwise, I would have had to come looking for you. Our next piece explores the changes we bring to the world around us as we fight to survive and conquer the dangers of our solar system. Saletta, composed by Nicholas Vines and performed by Ryan McAvoy McCullough, is one movement of a composition titled Terraformation. From the album, Hipster Zombies from Mars. 
We go next to one of the most maligned characters in mythology and lore. Through the injustices that befall her, we explore how dueling desires for righteous vengeance and absolution are reconciled within a body. Sea and Stone, written by producer Nicole Kalant, was read by Gabby Sibal. Please be advised that this piece contains non-graphic depictions of sexual assault. The day was bright, the breeze was clear and warm. The sea reached up in earnest curiosity and embraced the high sandy cliffs. A woman broke the surface, choking on air and water. But her kicks and strokes were precise and powerful. After all, she had been born from beneath the sea foam. She reached the land bare and strong and stepped forward to the amazed locals. She addressed the strangers, saying that she had come to be their guardian. Thus, she was named Medusa, meaning protectress in their native tongue. The people who served the gods took Medusa to their temple. On the roads, the local fishermen gaped at Medusa's unblemished form. She averted her eyes from theirs, but kept her face forward. She felt, for the first time, shame at the thought of their gaze taking in her body, which she realized was naked. At the temple, the priestesses took her aside, anointing her body with scented oils and rich perfumes. Many would stroke her dark hair, praising its color, its feel, and its sheen. Their daft words nodded her, and she wondered if it had been right to come with these people. She thought back to her life within the gentle thrum of the sea, so peaceful and free. She had not needed a body then, nor a name. Just as a single drop of rain in the ocean becomes inseparable, so she had been part of a larger power, rolling and churning and rising as one. Now, she was alone and trapped, feeling foreign hands roam this body, a body that left her vulnerable, that felt things, things she couldn't control. At one point, she was confused to find seawater leaking from her eyelids. Though the priestesses had clucked their tongues at what they thought was insolence, she felt comforted by the taste of home as the drops rolled down her cheeks and onto her parched lips. The oldest priest surveyed Medusa when the others had finished preparing her. His eyes focused on her body still naked and bare. He did not touch her, but his voice was a blow when he barked. Are you pure? Of course she was, she wanted to say. Her purity was that of the deep ocean, that of the sunlit waves. Her purity was that of a seabird's cry. But he would not understand. She nodded. Just barely. She was ready. 
the priest decided. That night, a god visited her bed. This was not his temple, but he still felt entitled to her. He whispered her name, Medusa, like a prayer, but there was no devotion in it. She ached to be spray of foam, a swelling current, a towering crest, water that could so easily ebb away. But under the god's gaze, she felt frozen as though turned to stone, a cliffside for him to roar against. That was the worst of it, that some haunting trace of the sea coursed through him, like the roar of a storm that left her empty and wrecked in his wake. The god left her, and she felt no more comfort in the seawater that ran down her cheeks. When the goddess of the temple found out what had transpired at her altar, she visited Medusa. The goddess reached out towards Medusa's face, as if to brush the trails of salt water with her fingertips. But instead, she touched a single lock of inky hair. The goddess pronounced her judgment, but all Medusa could hear was the howl of a hurricane. Remove the sea from me. Remake me as stone, impenetrable, immutable. The words were a mantra, a prayer to herself. Medusa awoke on the third day to the thrum of her new body. It sparked with frustration and power like lightning striking the sea. She flew far from the memories of the fishermen, the priests, gods and goddesses, the temple, even from her beloved sea, all the way to the farthest edge of the world. Here, there was no rush of waves, no shimmer of sunlight, no one but Medusa and the mist. They say Medusa lived there for hundreds of years, content to mutter to her shadows in the caves. The whispered stories would make her out to be a vile witch, a hardened beast. They spoke of conquering this abomination, but their prideful boasts turned to screams of terror that echoed against the stone. Those who violated her sanctuary, who dared look upon her, saw only the fury of a volcanic eruption, the crushing pressure of deep stone, and the shattering might of an avalanche. They all froze, powerless as the wave of stone within Medusa crashed upon them. All those who sought to take Medusa for a prize perished. Such was the blessing of the goddess. Some days, she thought she could almost hear the ocean calling to her, her sea, not the gods. The taste, or perhaps a dream of the taste of salty sea air, would almost drive her to abandon her hate. But the hiss of snakes would remind her, and the haze of vengeance would settle over her vision once more. 
Yet, even so, she tired of her solitude and understood her stony existence in the mist could not last. Not even stone can weather the grinding of time. When the man finally came, with sickle and shield, under the cover of darkness, Medusa was waiting for him. But she was no gift, and the man no god. But under the sound of uncertain feet, Medusa heard the call of the gull, the siren singing her name, the whispering crash of waves, and the sweet bubbling of tide pools. These rocks are crumbling, Medusa. You can always come home. In her mind's eye, she found herself beneath the waves on a balmy summer day. She drank in the way the sunlight would filter through the shallows, the breeze skipping across the surface, sending droplets dancing across the endless shining waves. And Medusa felt the gentle tingle of, was that salt water? Impossible salt water, there at the corner of her eye. The water had returned to her, and she felt herself shudder. After all this time, she thought the stone had dried up her soul, that she was an empty drought of hardened rock. But no, she was still that same woman of the water. Before the goddess's gift, before the temple, and before she was ever Medusa. She felt the stone within her shatter and water rushing in to meet her. Her last thought as the sword whooshed toward her neck, sounding just like the eternal waves, was of the sea. At the stroke of the blade, there was no pain, just a spray of sea foam as her vessel fell away. Relief cascaded over her as she thought, yes, I am finally going home. Transformation can express many versions of ourselves, reshape the world in our image, and lead us to peace and maturity. Our growing pains can be cathartic, or our transformations can reveal painful and essential truths. We hope, dear listener, that our monstrous podcast is as transformative for you as it is for us. Thank you to Dara Rangan and Nicholas Vines for your contributions, and to Thomas Head, Julian Lopez, Eric Little, Della Robertson Glenn, Liesel Matska, and Gabby Sabal for your performances. Thanks to Mason Sonik, Kai Engel, and Sergei Cheremisinov for additional sounds and audio. To find out more about these pieces, our artists, and our readers, please visit our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. Our next episode, our annual Halloween Spectacular, will be released on October 30th. In the meantime, we have filled submissions through our November episode, so we're looking for stories, poetry, audio plays, and music to feature in episodes 15 and beyond. 
We have updated our themes for those episodes, so make sure to check those out on our website. You can learn more about themes, submission details, and voice acting opportunities on our website's submit page. You can also stay up to date with podcast news at monstersoutofthecloset.tumblr.com and at pod underscore monsters on Twitter. Special thanks to our supporting producers, Dada Rangan, Lindsay Holt, Saro Lopez, and Lourdes Kaland. And a very big thanks to all of our patrons who make us able to compensate our artists for months to come. To help this project reach greater heights, help us grow by rating and reviewing us on Apple iTunes and spreading the word. It really does help. Thanks so much. Monsters out.